We are in a series in the Psalms. And in the Psalms, in fact, turn to the front of your bulletin. We talked about announcements on the inside. Turn to the front there, and you've got there the essential Psalms. And Psalms can be a good time. A series like this can be a time just to, you know, we'll visit around a bit. You know, we've got, it's summertime. People are in and out. They're coming and going. We wear them out from VBC. They don't come on Sunday. They can come back next week, and they won't really have missed something because, well, it's just a new Psalm. We'll start over again with a completely different theme that week. It doesn't build week by week necessarily. So that's, that makes it good for summer. People travel, go on trips. And, um, but there's something else about psalms. Psalms are different because psalms are poetry. Sometimes we're reading through our Bible and we read through the psalms and the psalms, all of a sudden we realize psalms are different and I don't quite understand. If you understand other things, like I love the letters. I love Paul's letters in the New Testament. I get those. My mind thinks logical, linear, sequential. I get that. You throw me in poetry and all of a sudden I'm at sea. What's going on here? And yet poetry is meant to not only be understood, poetry is meant to be felt. Poetry has an emotional power to it that, that sometimes, sometimes a letter, like one of Paul's epistles, sometimes even a story, a narrative, doesn't have. Poetry, you feel it, and it can kind of sneak in around the back door or the side door. Not merely into your mind, but into your heart. Even before you fully understand all that's being said there, you feel it. Let me give you an example of that. A couple lines of a poem. The cat's in the cradle, the silver spoon. A little boy grew to a man on the moon. When you coming home, son? I don't know when. But we'll get together then, Dad. You, You know we'll have a good time then. When I hung up the phone, it occurred to me, My boy is just like me. Yeah, he'd grown up just like me. Those few lines, they carry an emotional punch. I don't know a man my age that doesn't hear those those lines and all the regrets of opportunity and fatherhood missed. And oh, if I could have them back. Oh, if I could do it differently, and yet I can't. It's gone. And maybe some of my regrets are now being repeated in the next generation. And you feel that when you hear those lines. And yet, it didn't take even a whole chapter in a book to lay that out. It took a few lines of poetry And it tells the story and you feel the impact of it. That's what the Psalms give us. The Psalms, we are to worship God with our spirit and we are to worship God in our mind. And the Psalms help us to do that. So the the Psalms can be refreshing. This picture that we chose for this series, it's on the front, front cover there. This, these are the springs of En Gedi. You remember, remember En Gedi where... where um, where, where David hides from Saul, and Saul goes into the cave, and David's hiding in the back of the cave, and that story, it occurs in En Gedi. But En Gedi is, an, is a desert oasis. En Gedi is in the midst of a barren area where you could be long thirsty. There's a couple of other stories that relate to En Gedi in the, in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. But, but En Gedi, if you were to go east from En Gedi, you would find yourself at the Dead Sea and the, and, the, and the salt along the edges of the Dead Sea. And there's water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. And, and you go into the wilderness, you climb the cliffs out of En Gedi, and anywhere around it to the south, to the north, to the west, there's, there's 
there's barely enough for a goat to make a living. There is just nothing out there. And, uh, but there in this little strip, in this canyon, all of a sudden water, water that would, had soaked into the ground up above on the, uh, in the Judean highlands, that, that it seeps through that ground for a while. It gets to a rock layer, and so it just moves sideways until suddenly it bursts out in a spring, and it flows over in a waterfall. And then a couple of them cascade down in these springs of Engedi, in this green spot in a desert. And the wilderness is something of life. And the Psalms can be that a lot of times when you're, when you're aching, when you're weary, when you're worn out, sometimes by default you go to the Psalms for comfort. And that's a good thing to do. And so it's good also to, for us to be familiar with them before we get there before we're worn out. Now, we need to approach the Psalms differently. And I gave you a, 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 a notes handout in the bulletin, and I, I put the whole text. I like Psalm 8 because it's short. It's compact. And yet it is huge. It is majestic. It is big and expansive. And yet I could put it in a few lines here on the page. And, 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 and there's, an, there's an indentation there's a structure to this psalm that bears out what Psalm 8 is really all about, what we should get out of it. There's a structure that's hidden here that I wanted to show you. Now, where that, what I'm seeing in Psalm 8 is that the Lord delights to use those who seem weak and insignificant to fulfill His purposes. The Lord delights to use those who are seemingly weak and insignificant to fulfill and accomplish his purposes. Now, where do I get that? Well, there's an ABC structure. Hebrew poetry, it might have some rhyming in it, like we normally associate with poetry, but it has parallels. And I'm not going to jump now into a, into a technical lecture on the parallelisms of Old Testament Hebrew poetry. That would be fun, but we're not going to do that. Instead, now and again, when, the, when those parallels pop out at us, we'll, we'll point them out along the way. Here it's what's called an ABC structure that repeats. Now you expect repetition in the psalm because it opens and closes. This is a great call to worship psalm, and that's where we used it this morning in the service, because it begins with, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, and it closes with the same line. It's not the only repeat. There's a pattern repeat. First of all, we begin with our Lord, our majestic Lord in verse 1. That's what I'll call the A-line. And then there's the reference to those who seem weak and insignificant, the out of the mouths of babes and even infants. And then there's the accomplishing of God's purposes. You establish strength because of your foes to, to still or to stop the enemy and the avenger. So there is our our. Majestic Lord, who uses those who are seemingly weak to accomplish his purposes. You see A, B, C, and so I showed you those indents. And then you look down to verses 3, 4, and 5, and 6, and you see the same pattern repeat again. So that pattern should tell us there's something there that we need to see. The, the pattern repeats itself. So let's, let's just dive in there and talk a little bit about the Lord delights to use those who seem weak and insignificant to reveal his wonderful likeness to accomplish his purposes. Verse 1, there's the night sky, small stars that are actually huge. And God made 
all of that. God is above all of that. God is above and bigger than any trouble, any problem that we're facing. And that our God, out of the mouths of babes and infants, he establishes strength. Now, the babes and infants, they are a rhetorical contrast to, to strength. We don't, you don't expect after reading babies and infants, you don't, the last word you expect is strength. And yet, that's the Hebrew. In fact, the Greek translate, translators of the Old Testament, they scratched their head on that and they said, ah, that just doesn't fit. What do we do with that? And they, they translated strength as praise instead. Well, there's a purpose in that. There's a, there's a brevity in Hebrew. Poetry is so compact. The cat's in the cradle, the silver spoon. The whole childhood is rolled up in those two lines. Hebrew uh, poetry, all poetry, is very compact and yet emotionally powerful. And so the, the, um, the contrast of strength, it's, it's, if you unpack that, you would say praise concerning the Lord's strength. All of that is, 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 is packed into that. That's what's being described. And, and the Lord would use those even, and so that's how it's quoted. Jesus quotes that, referring to children in Matthew 21. That it's the strength, it's, it's praising God's strength that God uses, even those who are weak, in praising God's strength. That's where our refuge is. That's where our fortress is. That's where our confidence lies, to still, to stop the enemy and the avenger. No, that's not comics. That's not... Uh, that's not Marvel. That's um, the, the Avenger. Think of, well, well, there's two kinds of Avengers. The, there's an Avenger who accomplishes a just vengeance. Uh, you, you murder somebody in my family, and I'm going to be the Avenger for my family, my family who, will, who, will, who will go after the guilty and bring that one to justice. Uh, um, eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. Unless that person who is guilty of killing someone in my family, maybe it was an accident, they're going to run to a city of refuge. You see, even in that ancient Israel practice described in the law, the gospel's there, isn't it? There is harm to another. There is sin and there is guilt and there is justice upon that guilt and yet one can run to a, to a, to a refuge. But, it's, but this is not that kind of avenger. That's an avenger that says, well, well, you hurt us, so I will hurt you. No, this is an avenger. This is a vindictive enemy. This is, this is someone who would say, because I am hurting, I'm going to hurt others. And we see a lot of that in our society today. People who are hurting themselves and out of that hurt flows over or overflows in anger that seeks to hurt others just because they themselves hurt. It's not a just kind of vengeance at all, but it is a vindictive enemy. And yet that kind of enemy is stopped or stilled out of the, the um, praising God's strength. Now, is that really true? Does God really use just the, the saying and declaring or singing of God's praise to actually stop an enemy in his tracks? Has that ever happened? Come with me to Jericho. Israel, across the Jordan, sees a city, a fortress city, a walled city, that there's guarding the entrance into the land God has given them, and there's no way they can take that city. Those walls are impenetrable. They have just taken in the harvest. They have got stores to last for months, probably years. What are we going to do? They cross over the Jordan. They come to the other side, and there they're made even weaker through circumcision. 
And yet, what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to march around the city. Go around the city. Seven days. Seventh day, go around the city seven times and shout to the Lord the praise of his strength and the walls come a-tumbling down. It's not only, not, not only in, Jer- in, in, in Jericho. What about Gideon versus Midian? Gideon starts with 30,000 men. He's got a decent army to go after the Midianites with. It's not enough, granted you numbers to numbers, but it's a, it's a, it's a fair force if he, if he plans and strategizes well. And God says, that's too many. Let's get it down to 10,000. No, no, that's too many. Let's, uh, 300, that'll do it. And he's got 300, and they've only got enough guys, basically, to hide their, horch, hide, hide their torch in a pitcher until the right moment that they're going to break the pitcher, make a little noise, show the light, and they're all going to shout, praise to the Lord. And the enemy gets all confused and kills themselves, and the Midianites are defeated. And not only that, there's, there's Hezekiah when Jerusalem is surrounded by the Assyrians, and Hezekiah just lays that out before the Lord. There's one of my favorites, and it goes back to the springs of Engedi. Edom has come to attack Jerusalem. They're going to take out King, Je- King Jehoshaphat. They, this, they see an opportunity and weakness, and they're coming after, coming after the kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem. And Edom has gotten Moab and has gotten the Ammonites, two other countries, nations of peoples, with them. And they have come across already. They're on the west side of the Jordan. They're on the west side of the Dead Sea. They have stopped off at the springs of Engedi to fill their water bottles before they head on up to Jerusalem. And then they're going to climb up those cliffs and they're going to be on their way and there'll be nothing to stop them. And the word gets to Josephat that, that Edom and Moab and Ammon have rallied together and they are already at Engedi. They're already in our side of the water and, and there's nothing to stop them. What do we do? And that's exactly what Josephat tells the Lord. Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. You know what God tells them to do? Well, go out to get... Go out against them tomorrow, but the Lord is going to fight for you. You go out, in fact, take the choir, put the choir up front. Joseph had chooses some singers to sing, and he puts those in the front, and off they go singing, Praise ye the Lord, his mercy endures forever. And they get out there to the, uh, to the top of the plateau that overlooks down into Engedi down below, those, that same cliff that the enemies are going to have to be coming up over. Maybe they're going to be surging over even as they arrive. And singing God's praise, they get to the cliff and they look over. And there's been some kind of fight, there's been some kind of skirmish, there's been some kind of jealousy or distrust or something that has, and God has stirred these, these, these three armies to go after each other instead. And they all lay dead on the ground. And the enemies of God are defeated, and God uses the praises of his people who do not have the strength in themselves to, to still and to stop the avenging enemy. God would do that with us. How could God use our mouths to answer those who are rebelling against him? How would God use us to those who are hurting themselves and so they just hate God and they hate those God loves? How would God use us to answer them, not with our arguments, not with like for like, but how would God use us to answer those who were inactive? As, as Ryan declared last week out of, out of Psalm 2, they are raging against the Lord and against his anointed. And yet, could God use us, even in our weakness, to answer in the praise of God's strength? Maybe it would be 
Maybe it would be, do I grumble in the midst of difficulties or do I express trust in God? I don't know how this is going to work out. This is really a mess, but I, but I trust the Lord in this too. God has always provided for me one way or another. I can trust God in this as well. Do I, do I forgive others even when they've hurt or harmed me? Do I forgive others even as God in Christ has forgiven me? Am I willing to, to praise God for his provisions, or do I delight in what I've been able to accomplish and acquire? Look at the good deal I made rather than look what God has given. Maybe in the midst of a time when you are being mocked for your faith and people, or for, your, for your, um, your integrity and what you're willing to do or not do, and uh, they don't understand, and maybe they ridicule you for it. Maybe it costs you professionally. You're persecuted, as Peter said, for righteousness' sake. What does he tell you to do in 1 Peter chapter 3? To be ready at those times. To be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you. But do you do that with gentleness and respect? You see, we don't have the ability ourselves. We're not even bright enough to overcome our enemies. To overcome the Lord's enemies and their rage against him. But God delights to use those who seem weak and insignificant to, to accomplish his purposes. That, that God will use the praise of his strength through those who are weak to meet the strong. A, B, C. The Lord uses those who are weak to establish and show his strength. Okay, look at verse 3. Then we see the same A, B, C pattern again. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers. What is man? that you are mindful of him. Oh, but you have made him. Now, it might not seem it, but we have the same ABC structure again, so let's work through it. Yeah, th this part of the psalm reminds me of a time before we heard Brush Prairie, but probably 20 years ago. One night, a couple came over to talk with, talk with Julie and I because the husband, younger couple as well, they were, he was really despairing. In fact, he just tried to take his own life. And he was afraid he would do it again. He didn't really want to. It wasn't that he wanted to die. He just didn't see the point in continuing to try to live. He was that at sea and had a loss of what could be good in life for him. He had, he had a particular physical limitation uh, um, that, that held him back in some ways. And, and uh, he looked around, he saw others, he saw his own brother succeeding and doing well and, and had this comparison going on in his own head. And, and he didn't see any value for himself and thus in his life. And one of the things we shared with him that night was Psalm 8, and it was these verses. When I look at your heaven, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, those things that the kids closed their eyes and imagined or saw on the screen, that, that, that God hung all of those there. And when we consider the vastness of it and the bigness of it, well, that's huge. And yet, it seems small to us, but it's huge. And yet, that is God's finger work. Did you notice that? When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers. That's not God's great work. That is not that which, which God must move the right arm of his power. This is God's finger work. No, it's a delicate work. Like, like finger work, you know, that's your fine tuning. In fact, in the created 
in the created order, one of the best apologetics in the realm of science is the fine-tuning that is throughout creation. All through creation, there's all these little, little bits that if they were just slightly different, one example, if the earth orbit was just slightly closer or slightly further from the sun, we would not have human life on this planet. That's just one little example, but, but those are all over in creation. This wouldn't work if anything was off a little bit. It's God's fine detailed work, yes. It's his finger work. In some ways, it's his little work. The work of your fingers. This is not God's heavy listing. And yet, when, when, when God comes to his people and God brings his people out of Egypt and Moses begins to do the work of God through a man who seems weak and stammers and who is he to stand before Pharaoh? And Pharaoh would just dismiss him out of hand. And yet, these wonders that God does through Moses, that the Lord delights to do through those who seem weak, Pharaoh's counselors, Pharaoh's advisors look at that and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, Pharaoh, we can't do, th- we, we can't do something like that. This is the finger of God. The fingerprints of God are on his working through his people. When I look at your heavens, the work of your hands, the moon and the stars, I see all this glory. What is man that you are mindful of him? What is man that you remember him? What is the son of man? What is humanity and the descendants through the ages? What is humanity that you would care for him, the ESV says? And the word care for, it's a good word. It's a good translation, but there's other verses that echo this if we catch the, an, another word we translate that same Hebrew by, which is visits. God visits. Now, we think about God visiting. That'd be kind of fun, wouldn't it? It'd be kind of fun if God visited today. Some people talk now and again about, yeah, the Lord visited me, sat down at the end of the, end of the bed, we had a conversation. Okay, that's weird. I'm not sure, but maybe. And, and, and you know, Jesus came along, and Jesus visited with us for 30-some years. Well, that was cool, right? But... Jesus visiting, tabernacling among us actually tells us a little more about what's going on here. When God visits, when God visits, God comes near to his people, not just to be with them. God doesn't just visit to have tea and then go his way. God visits his people to come near and to intervene and to change in their circumstances. For instance, Joseph told his brothers that the Lord is going to visit you and bring you out of Egypt. He's going to come near you to do something for you. In the book of Ruth, God had visited in the midst of a famine. In Bethlehem, that drove this family out in their own desperation away from Bethlehem to the land of the Moabites. God has visited his people in bringing them bread. God had visited, God had intervened, God had broke the famine. And there, there was food and livelihood and prosperity again in the land of Bethlehem. In Luke chapter 1, Zechariah, the, the, the father of John the Baptist, speaking of the one whom John would be the forerunner of, Zechariah said, the Lord has visited and redeemed his people. When God visits, he doesn't just come to hang out with us for a while and then go our way. He comes to our home, but he wouldn't bring us home with him. No, actually, when we are to visit in the, in the book of James, when we're to visit orphans and widows, That's not just to go and have tea. That's nice. That's nice. 
That's not just to visit him for a while, catch up, uh, want you to feel loved, and then we'll go our way and leave them to their situation, whatever it is. When God visits, he visits us in order to not leave us there, but to bring us home with him. And so that's why there's something in James that the first century church caught on to, and I love it when I see Christians doing it today. When they visited orphans, they do it to bring them home with them. And make them part of their family, even as God has made us part of his. Yeah, God has visited his people and redeeming us and restoring us. And so we get to live that out to people around us as well. What is man, though, that you are mindful of? What, who are we? What worth do we have that, that God would visit us? That God would care, would notice us in the midst of such a huge creation? Yet... Verse 5, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. And that sounds, I'm not sure that, 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 that helps us here. God made us lower. No, God made us as the only ones on earth, the only ones in this creation that the, that the book is written about. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and we're the only ones on it who are made just a little lower than the heavenly beings. We are the capstone of God's earthly creation. We are the only ones here on the earth made in His image according to His likeness, and that image refers to we being the representatives of God in the midst of His creation. That God is not directly visible in his creation. He's put us here to represent him to the creation. Oh, there is an ecology. There is a stewardship over all of creation built into that. But, but just, just, just think about that for a minute. In the, in the ancient Near East, uh, the king couldn't be everywhere, so he would put a statue of himself over here and over there and over there. And you even find idols this be, be, because uh, the god can't be here or there and there all at the same time, these so-called gods. And so they'd have an image of him here and there and there to represent the god, to remind you that he was there. Could it be that the, our purpose as image bearers of the one true and living God is to remind the rest of creation? Yeah, how you take care of even your cat is important because you are the bearer of the image of God to the beasts of the field and even to, even to cats. How we, how, we, how we care for animals, how we garden, these things matter because we are God's representative. We are God's agents over his creation. God, God, God visits and comes near. God has made us a little lower we are, we are, we are not, it's, it's, the point is not that we are less than the heavenly beings. We are the capstone of his creations. We are the apple of God's creative eye. This is not a degradation. This is not a lessening of humanity. God made us to represent him. God made us in his likeness. Now, there's a difference between the rest of humanity and Jesus. We are made in the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. There is, a, there is an essential difference between the two. And yet we represent God. We are in his likeness. We are made like him to show what God is like. We're to specifically represent ways that God is like in his compassion, in his mercy, in his love, in his own humility, in his justice, in his righteousness. We are to demonstrate that in how we live upon the earth, not only among one another, but certainly among one another. 
And there's the mercy as well to the rest of creation, caring for animals that may not, well, I mentioned a cat, that doesn't really add a whole lot. I mean, do cats contribute anything other than fur? Seriously? And yet we care for them too. We're supposed to. You have made him just a little lower than the angels, and yet there's more. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion. There you see it, this dignity, standing, importance, the, the visible, recognized honor. There was a recognition by the beast of the field that the man, the human, is in charge. You have given him dominion. You have put all things under his feet. There, here we have the domestication of animals, all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the fields. Notice also, dominion given flows out of identity to role. Humanity is given glory to bear the image, and dominion flows out of who we are, who God made us to be. What you do always flows out of who you are. Your duty always flows out of your identity. Don't, don't get it the other way around. Don't, don't not, it's not by fulfilling duty that we achieve an identity. That's the fallen way of the world. We have been given an identity in Christ. We have been given an identity in our creation, and out of that flows duty that we then live in. There's a dominion given to us, and yet it goes on in verse 8. Well, let me pause again. Did you see the pattern? There's an ABC again in verse 3. I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man, you would care for him. He's seemingly small, but no, God is working through that which is seemingly weak and insignificant. God working through for his purposes. You've made him just a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You have given dominion. In fact, over all the beasts of the, of the field, right? God has given us this dominion, but wait, there's another step to it. The birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the, through, the, through the paths of the sea, we don't see that yet, do we? We can handle sheep. We can handle cattle. Israel did. But Israel, Israelites didn't farm fish. We do a little fish farming today. But, but the whole sea was a scary place to them. Even the Sea of Galilee and certainly the Mediterranean. It was a chaotic place. It was an unstable place. It was a place beyond their control. That's the point. It was beyond their control. Up till now, yet, but it won't be. The, the Israelites didn't farm the, 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 the birds of the air either. They could not control them. They were above them. And yet one day, this dominion that we've been given, that we do currently exercise over sheep and oxen and so on, the beasts of the fields, that will also be given to us, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea. We don't have dominion there. Ask Jonah. Jonah ran into a fish. He had no dominion over it. And yet one day, that will not be the same. Hebrews quotes this passage, that this is not yet our experience. In putting everything in subjection to man, he says, God left nothing outside of his control, yet at present we do not see everything in subjection to him. But we do see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. What is the writer of Hebrews saying? He's saying, we don't yet see this dominion that's promised, but we see Jesus. 
And Jesus comes into a a broken, fallen humanity. And Jesus comes to restore what humanity has lost. He comes to restore us back into right relationship with God by taking our guilt, our sin upon himself, by dying in our place. That we, by believing and trusting what God has done through him for us, we can be restored into right relationship with God again. But not only that, but he's restoring what we lost as his agents over creation. And, and all things will be put, that which we do not yet see, in subjection to ourselves. Jesus comes to subdue all things to himself, Hebrews says, even death. So 1 Corinthians 15, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So there's the, there's the answer to the we don't yet see. But we see Jesus. We see what God has already, God has visited his people in sending his son into humanity to, to restore we who are weak and seemingly insignificant back into the capstone of creation role that God has created us for. You say, who am I? that God would be mindful of me? Who are we that God would bother to visit us? I was talking to somebody just yesterday, and they, they, they rightly called me out when I, when I gave them. This, this is what I see in Psalm 8, that, that, that the Lord delights to use those who, who are seemingly weak and insignificant to fulfill his purposes and his creation, even in ways that we don't yet see. And he said, well, wait, wait, wait a minute, seemingly weak? Because his perspective was, yes, of course, we are weak. Well, yeah. If I see my identity merely in me, I am weak. I am insignificant. But I am not merely in me. No. That's what happens when we spend too much time reading Ecclesiastes instead of Ephesians. We, we, we turn to Ephesians and we're reminded of what it is that God has done for us in Christ. Who am I that God is mindful of me? I am chosen. I am adopted. I am redeemed. I am forgiven. I have had his grace lavished upon me. I have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. I have been made wise in God. I have been shown God's will. I have been given an eternal inheritance which is being kept for me. And I am being kept indwelt by the spirit of the living God. As one who believes in Christ, I have been entrusted with the word of truth. God has made me his ambassador to others around me. Once I was dead, but I've been made alive in Christ. I have been raised up and I am seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Once I was outside, but now I belong. Once I was far off, but now I have been brought near. I have been made new. I have been reconciled to both God and to you. That's just Ephesians 1 and 2. Very briefly. But you get the picture. Yes, it, it, no, I, I, am not see, I am not weak. I am not insignificant in God's eyes in Christ. And that's how we need to see ourselves. John Wesley said, never consider yourself apart from Jesus. Because apart from Jesus, we, we, we don't have any reason to go on. But in him, we have every reason. We have the very reason that he made us for, which is to be his agent, his representatives, his stewards over, over his favorite work. 
In fact, he's taken the best. He's taken that work that took the right arm of his power, the very work of redemption, and he has committed to us that ministry of reconciliation. He has committed to us the message, the word of reconciliation. Thereby we are his ambassadors in Christ. Urging others in Christ's place, be reconciled to God. God has put that in our hands in such a grand and glorious anticipation that God will in fact restore all things. Did you see the change in the pattern? In your notes you had A, B, C. And in verse 3 again we had A, B, C in verses 5 and 6. and verse 8 you have a D. What we don't yet see. But we see Jesus. But we see Jesus. That's, that, that, that's the Hebrews 2 interpretation of Psalm 8. For, for, for centuries, Psalm 8 hung out there waiting for the answer, waiting for its fulfillment in Jesus. And now the answer is ours. Because he is ours. He has become wisdom and strength and redemption. Hasn't God shown in, 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 in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that he loves to take that those who seem foolish to confound the wise. He loves to use those who seem weak to confound the strong. He, he loves to use those who aren't really anybody to answer those who seem like they're somebody. Not many wise, not many noble. No, God uses the, the weak of this world to confound the strong. He will use me. He will use you. What's the answer to that? What's our response to that? That's why verse 9 goes back to verse 1. We start all over. The only answer to that is worship. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic, how high and exalted and lifted up, how wonderful is your name in all the earth. And let it be so through me, because I'm the agent through whom you're the one through whom God's wonder will be known through his creation. That's what he's given to us. That's what he's put in our hand. So I leave you with three questions at the bottom of the page. I wrote those there because I didn't want you to miss them. I wanted you to take those home. I wanted you to like the psalm. I wanted you to reflect on these. Where do I represent God as his image and have the opportunity to show his likeness to others around me? There's all kinds of ways. There's the, when I was growing up as a kid, the way that I cared for some of the animals in our field was a way to represent God's nature and character to them, if I, if I had known it. It might be at work, it might be at school, it might be with a neighbor, it might be in how I exercise fairness, it might be how you practice integrity in business, in your dealings, it might be in humility in the midst of differences with somebody, that I would rather be wronged than to be too pushy to another. In what ways do you not yet see the completion of God's plan for you. Marriage is not what I had anticipated it to be. I'm, I'm immersed in this conflict with somebody, and it shouldn't be, but I don't know how to, how to, how to resolve it. 
I have this affliction. I have this weakness. I feel the frailty of my flesh. I cannot do that which I would like to do. I do not yet see the fullness of what I know. I long for his future. Yeah, we should. But in what ways, in what ways might God intend to work in your life toward the completion of his purposes? In what ways would he delight to use you even in your seeming weakness and you think, well, I just can't do that. I've tried. I'm no good at it. I, 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 I tend to just avoid people because I'm just not good at relating to people. And when I do, it goes badly and I get hurt. Or In what ways would God intend to work in your life toward the completion of his plan? You know, this came out to me, and it may have been Psalm 8 was in the background of my mind when I was doing some reading just for my D group this week, and it came into one of my journal entries that for me it would be truthing and love. That would be one. I love, I love truthing. I love God's truth. But to do that more with others in love, aware and sensitive to where they are in the moment and what, they're, what they need right then rather than what I have to give them. I would love to be more generously merciful than I am. I can be very practical and pragmatic, but I, I'd, I, God make me more generously merciful. In what ways might God intend to work in your life? Give some prayerful thought to that. Because you, you are the ones that have this privilege of showing his likeness to the rest of the world around us. The Lord delights to use those who seem weak and insignificant to fulfill His purposes and to show His likeness in His creation even in ways that we do not yet see or even think possible. Because God is able to do exceedingly beyond what we would ask or even imagine according to His power, which works in us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord our God, how majestic is Your name. Lord, may it be in all the earth. May it be here in this church. May Your name indeed be high and lifted up in our lives toward others around us. May they see something more of Jesus as we seek to know and follow him. May people around us be reminded of your mercy, be reminded of your truth, be reminded of your compassion by what they see in us, what they hear from us. Oh, Father, continue to work in us beyond what we yet see for what you delight to do through us for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.